Hello, and welcome to Kickout 299. I'm Rachel, your local mid-card belt enthusiast. And I'm Alicia. Today, we have a really exciting deep dive for you, digging deep into the history of an oft-forgotten and frankly really fun piece of pro wrestling Noah's past. That's right. Today, we're going to be talking about the GHC Hardcore Openweight Championship. The GHC Hardcore Belt is something that we both come across during our time as fans of NOAA, and it was a part of the promotion's history we were really interested in learning more about. However, there isn't a whole lot written about the belt in English for fans to access. Preparing for this episode took a lot of research, watching as many matches as we could find, and overall, learning a lot of cool stuff, as well as debunking a few common misconceptions about the belt along the way. We're very excited to share what we've learned with you. I hope you're ready to learn about some of the more fun and zany bits of Noah's history beyond the legendary matches and epic storylines, because this one is going to be a fun one. So what is the GHC Openweight Hardcore Championship? Well, it was a semi-official professional wrestling championship established in Pro Wrestling NOAA on April 18th, 2004. It was also known as the Global Hardcore Crown, which was kind of funny, and the White GHC, which was the most commonly used official nickname for the belt. So Jun Akiyama initially proposed and created the belt in hopes that it would become an exciting part of local shows that didn't have any title fights on the card. Mitsuhara Misawa paid out of pocket for the belt's creation, and he served as the belt's special advisor, and I quote, as a result. Expanding on Akiyama's idea to make the belt a focus of local shows, it was decided that title matches for the white GHC would be held only in regions other than the Tokyo metropolitan area. However, title fights for the white belt were later held in the Budokan, Differariaki, and Kurikan, all located within Tokyo, twice each during the belt's history. So for a little extra fan service, and this is something that Alicia and I both really, really liked, there was something called the Noah Lottery sold at the entrance of each venue where the winners would go to the ring and read the match announcement. And after the match, the winner would have a commemorative photo taken with the belt and the champion and this tiny little trophy that matched the champion's trophy. It was really cute. It was super cute. And we actually found that while it was supposed to be something that really only happened at the prefectures at both Budokan uh, matches that we watched, this does actually happen. So it was happening at those Tokyo metropolitan area shows as well, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it was really popular, uh, especially at those Budokan shows. I went back actually and watched both of them and both of them had the fans cheering for the fan exclusively. One of them actually had them chanting the fan's name. (laughs) It was really good. They were just very over and it was a very fun experience. The energy of it was really unique and really uniquely Noah, which I just really loved. 
the color of the championship plate was silver, which differentiates it from the original GHC heavyweight championship. And the straps were white. It's a gorgeous belt. Absolutely beautiful. You said it before, but Noah has some of the absolute best belt designs. In this case, the colors were specifically because Akiyama, the creator and inaugural champion, wore white. He talks about this a little bit further when he talks about his reasoning, stating that white is a color that can be dyed. So metaphorically, the belt could take on the characteristics of any champion. So this comes into play, especially when we talk about the rules surrounding the belt. There are multiple mistranslations that Alicia and I came across when we were looking at the belt. It was actually one of the most fun parts about researching and preparing this episode was sort of debunking a couple of the myths that exist in the Western fandom about this belt. In actuality, there's no set stipulation for the white GHC. Before each match, the champion, challenger, and commissioner during Akiyama's run, that was Misawa. And then after that, it was Akiyama, actually. (laughs) Um, They would decide on the specific rule or even set of rules for that match. There was a standard go-to stipulation, which was a 15-minute time limit. And in the case of a draw, the belt changes hands. I'm pretty sure that one started with Marafuji's reign. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But that was sort of one that they kind of fell back on when they had nothing else. And one thing I will say, part of the reason why we wanted to talk about this belt is not just because it's really rarely talked about when people talk about Noah. There was something about this stipulation that we'll talk about later on when we're talking about Mara Fuji that has become this very common misconception with the belt. And we had this like really like what we thought was a funny in joke about it, but it turns out that it's such a, like, it doesn't exist. Like that rule doesn't really exist. <laughs> so it's no longer like something we can joke about anymore with the belt. So we actually learned a lot through trying to research this belt. So it's been kind of fascinating to get more into these matches and the history of this belt. The good news is, is that the joke kind of carries on because this belt is a little bit of a joke in and of itself. <laughs> there is so much that we can now joke about with this uh, with this belt. So fortunately, with one little in-joke gone, there's still a lot more to talk about and laugh about uh, the more we learn. And that's the best part about doing these episodes and about learning in general. So the YGHC was originally created as a singles title. But in 2007, Noah announced that it would be reformed into a tag team title, continuing the same lineage as the original belt. We're going to talk a little bit about this and the storyline that surrounds this in a little bit, but it's very important to cover right from the beginning. Later in 2007, they revert it right back into being a singles championship. Now, despite having hardcore in the name, This title isn't a hardcore belt in the traditional sense. Noah isn't a deathmatch company. I know that will shock everybody, (laughs) but they did have two matches that sort of fit the hardcore bill. In April of 2005, we have Muhammad Yone versus Takashi Morishima in a chain deathmatch in Osaka. And then in December 2006, we have Kentaro Shiga versus Kamikaze 
in a lumberjack death match. Now, the important thing about this second match is that that doesn't take place in Noah. That match actually took place, and we'll talk about that, in Zero One Max. It's the last match fought for the belt before it was temporarily reformed into a tag team championship. And it took place in Currican Hall in a different promotion. So we have two matches that fit the hardcore bill. And one half of them didn't really even take place in Noah, which I thought was just really funny and sort of sets the tone for the spell in general. So speaking of setting the tone, we have our champions, starting with our very first inaugural champion and creator of the belt, none other than Jun Akiyama. Akiyama was named as the first champion of the white belt. No decision match. They just put it right on him, came out with his brand new belt as the founder and creator. He first calls out Takuma Sano, who defeated him in a singles match in November of 2003 as his first challenger. On April 18th, 2004, Akiyama defended against Sano, thus settling the differences between them. It's important to note that Akiyama is incredibly petty. He really, really wanted (laughs) to defeat Sano to get revenge for this loss. And he wanted to do it in the exact same way that Sano had defeated him, which led to some arguments about the very first set of stipulations picked out for the white GHC. So Akiyama wanted to win only by three count pinfall because this is how he had lost to Sano in the previous year. Sano, however, for whatever reason, wanted to win only by knockout submission or (laughs) by a UWF rules loss point system. They couldn't agree. They were just arguing back and forth. So they went to the chairman of the belt, none other than Misawa. Misawa threw his hands in the air and was like, okay, Akiyama, you can only win by pinfall. Sano, you could only win by knockout or submission. When we watch this match, the story sort of unfolded from there. You have this moment in the match where Akiyama has a front face lock applied and Sano shouts that he gives up, but the referee has to throw out the decision. Similarly, Sano uses a Northern Lights bomb, which very much a finisher, but he can't score a victory from it because he can't win via penfall. So they really took this match to build sort of that stipulation of the belt and sort of made Misawa as the commissioner an important role. Like, okay, well, when they can't decide, then it's up to the commissioner to sort of approve of the stipulation and make the stipulation. So I thought that it was a really brilliantly built match myself. Like it was just, it was fun. It's, it's, it's a great match. Yeah, we both unironically loved this. And, you know, for all the jokes around this being a hardcore match, I mean, there is some steel chairs. There is a table (laughs) at one point, but it looks a lot like just like June and Sano moving the furniture around, which is just really kind of funny. And then at points, they keep cutting back to Misawa standing in a doorway, just staring out at the match. And there's just points where like, I think June is setting up a table 
and the camera just keeps cutting back to Misawa, who's just standing there just watching this. And like, it's just like, it's really just kind of funny at points. But yeah, like, it's just, it's so bizarre. It just, it seems like there's like almost three matches happening at once in this match because of the nature of like them trying to put chairs and tables in this, and then like all the different rules that are happening and what happening at once. But it's so fun. It's just, it's just like ironically, unironically rather, a good uh, a good match to watch. Yeah, it's that's a really perfect point. It's like one third a traditional Noah match, one third a UWF match, and then one third sort of a cosplay charade of a hardcore match. I referred to it as the Lacroix of hardcore, but um, it was. I I say this like it's a bad thing, but no, it was an incredible match. It was really, really, un, uh, really, really unironically enjoyable. So for the second defense. Akiyama chose to face this unofficial group known as the NOAA Health Club, which consists of Kishin Kawabata, Jun Izumita, and Masao Inoue. However, Jun Akiyama viewed this trio as all one single defense, meaning that the format was in order for it to count as a full defense, Akiyama had to defeat all three of them in a row. So I know what you're thinking. Okay, so it's a handicap match. No, it wasn't a handicap match. Okay, so maybe it was a gauntlet match. No, it wasn't a gauntlet match. He did three separate singles matches on three different legs of this tour. However, each one only counted as one third of a defense. It literally says this on the card when he's walking out and it shows how many defenses he's had. It will say Kishin Kawabata, one-third, Jun Izumita, two-thirds, and then Masao Inoue, second defense. So literally all three of them were viewed as one person. Akiyama states in an interview that he wanted to do it this way because he viewed these three as a second main army for Noah. If you, if you think of Noah as a never-ending episode of arrested development it starts to really make sense some of the decisions that get made but this belt in particular there are some stories attached to this belt that are just outstanding and this is this is definitely part of it incredible just absolutely incredible akiyama is a deeply creative man i'm gonna leave it at that He has a lot of ideas. You're going to find out that this uh, episode is actually my campaign to get Akiyama to hold the DDT Extreme title (laughs) because I think he would be a phenomenal champion. Mm. He's very, very creative and really funny. And as I stated earlier, incredibly petty, which leads us to our next match and our next champion, Naomi Chimara Fuji. On October 16th, 2004, Naomichi Marafuji overcomes this massive size difference between himself and Akiyama by defeating Akiyama via countout, becoming the belt's second champion. Now, this match is actually where the common misconception of the rules come from. The special rule set for this match stated that should the junior, Marafuji in this case, outlast the heavyweight, Akiyama, for 15 minutes, the belt would immediately go to him. And there was a secondary rule that he could also win the title on a countout. This rule was proposed by the belt's commissioner at the time, 
Mitsuhara Misawa. So 2004 is just such an interesting year for Noah, particularly if you're invested in people like Marafuji. He comes into this match, one half of the GHC Junior Tag Champions, along with Kenta. They've had the belt since July 2003, and they're the inaugural champions. And about a month from this hardcore match, Kenta and Marafuji are going to have a singles match, which happened to be Kenta's seventh trial match, and it's effectively the birth of their faded rivalry. In April 2004, Maru Ken had unsuccessfully challenged Misuhara Misawa and Yoshinari Ogawa for the GHC Heavy Tag Belt. So this is where you're starting to see Noah try to establish that people like Marafuji can move back and forth between the weight classes. And Marafuji actually holds on to the hardcore belt until just before he starts tagging with Minoru Suzuki full-time in 2005, which is part of his path to being heavyweight more or less full-time. So Marafuji is really someone that they're trying to push as an established star. And that's why they have him winning this match on a countout, which is actually really funny when you do see it because Marafuji gets in, the countout happens, Akiyama sort of wanders up to the ring <laughs> and he's leaning there staring at Marafuji and he looks like a foiled Scooby-Doo villain. It's just really, really funny. Yeah, it's a really fun match. And the ending is absolutely hilarious. Uh, Akiyama looks so bitter, which comes into play during Marafuji's reign, for sure. And I think to your point, it was really purposeful that Misawa sort of established this rule specifically for Marafuji's match to sort of create him like, look, this junior weight can outlast you. And that's why he got the belt. And then building off of that, why they wanted him to be seen with the belt. You and I had been talking about this, but I find it really significant that Marafuji's run is the only one where every single match made tape. This means that the company was deliberately picking matches for cards that would be on tape shows, shows that they had a TV deal. They wanted to show him off as a champion in this company. They were putting stock in Marafuji. They were using the white belt as a tool to get one of their younger talents over and to get him in the eyes of the public, which I think is really significant. The final match in his reign is in the Nippon Budokan. It's the very first one that they got into the Tokyo metropolitan area. I think that really says something. And I think it's really the only time they even use the white belt in such a way, which I think is really significant as well. So speaking of matches where they're trying to push their young talent and show off their young talent, we have Marafuji's very first defense, which is against Go Shiyazaki, just four months into his debut, Little Black Trunks running out to pop punk music, just absolutely delightful to watch. And this match had a rule stating that if Shiyazaki lasted 15 minutes, the match would end in a draw and Shiyazaki would become the new champion. This is extremely similar to the rules in Akiyama and Marafuji's match. However, Shiyazaki is a heavyweight. Even four months out of his debut, he is billed as 100 kilograms. He is a heavyweight and Marafuji is still significantly smaller than him. So this sort of is where we first started to realize a lot of the misconceptions in translations here, because we had read that the 
main stipulation of this belt was that should the smaller opponent, the junior weight, outlast the heavyweight, the same Marafuji rules, they would win the belt. So we had this in-joke that they should bring this belt back and that how should be the champion for five years straight because he just can always outlast them. It's this whole thing. <laughs> so we were a little disappointed to learn that wasn't the case, but that doesn't mean that they can't bring it back and that how can't win it and just make that the stipulation for every single match. It could still happen. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about that later in the episode. Okay. We'll talk about that. We'll, we'll discuss that one. But this rule was established not only by the champion challenger, but it was actually proposed by the commissioner of the belt at the time, Junakiyama. What's important about this is that Akiyama spent Marafuji's reign sitting on the sidelines, glaring at Marafuji, just absolutely so bitter, watching this matches so intently, just hoping, hoping that the opponent would beat uh, Marafuji in 15 minutes. So this brings in some real drama into the Shiazaki match, where Marafuji finally wins, finally overcomes on his experience and his skill in 14 minutes and 48 seconds with just 12 seconds left to spare. It's really fun. It's a really high drama match between these two young now greats. So I definitely recommend that one as well. And I think it's just fascinating for the time period. And like, like you said, Shiozaki was literally four months in from his debut at this point. And he came that close to winning a belt off Marafuji and granted not, you know, a major belt in Noah at the time, but still he got to, he got to last that long in a ring with Marafuji four months into his debut in Noah. So just really fascinating and just kind of shows you, I think maybe what they even saw in him then and really interesting to reflect on now, especially if you're really invested in um, the rivalry between Marafuji and Shiozaki. Oh, absolutely. And then you have this rule recycled with Haruka Aigen, who is the age of Marafuji's father, as pointed out by several fans on Twitter. And that match lasted seven minutes. It was, you know, Marafuji won it fairly tidily. So I think that you're onto something. This really says something that they wanted Shiyazaki to be the one to take Marafuji down to that wire. And yeah, it really speaks to that belt at that time during that one specific Marafuji reign that it was about youth and the future of Noah. I think that's really cool. So unfortunately the rain couldn't last. We do have Muhammad Yone winning the title off of Naomichi Marafuji on March 5th, 2005. This was, as I said, the first white belt match fought in Tokyo in the Nippon Budokan. And I just want to say too, I came across a fan's blog when doing some research with Rachel on this, and they had an entry around their surprise that this match, which Marafuji actually called for himself, they were surprised that it was booked for the Budokan because it, like we said, it was so well known at this point that it was meant to be defended at prefecture shows, not a venue in Tokyo. So there was quite a bit of fan surprise around this, which was just interesting to note. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it really built some excitement and also some surprise, but it's interesting that even this sort of early into the belts run that it was already getting a little bit of a reputation. And that's definitely one thing to keep in mind when listening and talking and thinking and learning about the progression of this belt and sort of how it interacted with Noah's fans and Noah at large. 
So speaking of the reputation of the belt, we have Yone, who was one of the few to fight an actual hardcore match for this belt. And that would be the chain death match in Osaka against Morishima. This match was untelevised, sadly, as hard as we looked for it, but it had been stated in official reports that both of them struggled with the chain as neither of them were really used to it. And the match ultimately ended on a double KO, which goes back to what Alicia was talking about in the Sano match with Akiyama, where they're just sort of throwing around this furniture, like they don't really know what to do with it. And it's just, that's so Noah with that interaction of actual hardcore wrestling. They just don't quite know what to do. In addition to that chain match, We do have some other hints of Hardcore Yone, as we have started calling him. Uh, His match against Scorpio, which was decidedly brutal. That match was filmed, but we couldn't find it anywhere. So if any of you have seen it, heard of it, have a bootleg, please let us know. I would absolutely love to watch this match. It was officially reported afterwards, however, that Scorpio even though he won the match, he sustained a leg injury and needed to be escorted to the hospital immediately afterwards. So this sort of created a reputation for Yone, not necessarily a bad one, but more just that his matches live up to the hardcore name. He becomes pretty tightly associated with the white belt. A healthy handful of fans cite in the past and now, even now, that he is the most memorable champion. We noted before while we were just looking around on Twitter that the leave actually posted a fairly recent, I think about 2020, 2021 picture of Yone holding the white belt. And he's very much just sort of associated with it. His match with Marafuji is mentioned a lot as well when fans look back sort of fondly upon the white belt. Thinking about Yone and him now, being associated with the hardcore belt, I immediately thought of Akiyama and Marafuji when they were promoting the February 2021 Budokan show for Noah. Akiyama mentioned a July 2008 tag match at the Budokan where Yone concussed him with a slap and he doesn't remember <laughs> the rest of the match after the slap. And then Marafuji actually said the, th- the same thing happened to him during his white belt match with Yone. So clearly all of that is what makes Yone hardcore, his slaps. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's hardcore Yone. He's the toughest member on the Noah roster. That is actually kayfabe now. That is how it is recorded down. You can tell everybody like Sugiura, no, no. The most hardcore member is Mohamed Yone. So that brings us into Scorpio's reign, which began on that uh, aforementioned match On October 22nd, 2005, he held the belt for nearly a year, just six days shy of holding the record for the longest reign with the belt. I can't find a whole lot of details about his reign, but he was a very, very beloved member of when he showed up for the Noah roster. They they loved him. He was very popular among the fans for his bright and fun-loving attitude. And he took a lot of pictures with fans with the belt. He let them hold the belt. You saw in the match with Kanemaru where he walks out um, and he's letting the fans touch the belt. He's very well liked 
And I find that that is sort of a common thread with a lot of these champions, especially after Mara Fuji's reign. No longer are we using the belt to put over a young talent. Now they're putting the belt on these sort of fan favorite mid-carters who are known for their excitement, who are known for deserving it just by being well-loved, by being well-liked, while working really hard. And this sort of shapes the identity of the belt as kind of a low-level belt that gives the mid-card something to do. And I will say, we watched Yoshinobu Katamaru versus Scorpio, and I highly recommend this match. I think of the ones that we watched for this episode, that was probably our favorite, hands down. Katamaru is just so smooth, and he can truly work with anyone, and it really shows in this match. Scorpio sells for him the whole way through as well and, and puts Katamar over as like this credible threat to him in his, in his belt. And we can debate and discuss the outcomes of some of these matches from this time period, but Noah does tell some incredible stories between the weight classes. And this match is just such a good example of that. Yeah, it's a really classic size different match. Like Scorpio is really playing it up to the crowd. He's sort of gesturing like, oh, he's so small and getting the crowd to sort of be like, no, you can beat him, Connemaro. And Connemaro is pulling out this amazing stuff that, you know, most people wouldn't be able to pull off on a guy twice his size. And he's just so smooth and so talented. And Scorpio is really just selling for him like he's lost all the bones in his body. It's a great match and it really shows something that is a huge strength in Noah. You'll talk about it a lot, Alicia, of these great size different battles. You'll even see them today, you know, they'll throw, was it Seiki Yoshioka in against, you know, Nakajima, just these really cool little mid-card matches that you can't really see anywhere else. And uh, I really think that Kanemaru and Scorpio really capture that and really show off just what these open weight matches can do and why we could really benefit from an open weight belt. And we'll definitely talk about that one later. So this brings us to September of 2006. Kentaro Shiga wins the belt from Scorpio. This was Shiga's very first and only title belt in his entire career as the GHC Hardcore Tag Championship is logged as a continuation of Shiga's reign. He won this title 12 years into his debut and fans were just really, really delighted. He had come back from a career-ending injury, had a reputation for just being a really hard worker and fans were just really excited that he even had a title at all. Yeah, and just to give some background on Shiga for people listening who maybe aren't really that familiar with him, he debuted for All Japan in 1994, and he actually won two junior heavyweight battle royales during his time there. What I think he is most well-known for is being a part of the original burning lineup with Kobashi, Akiyama, and Kanemaru when the unit formed in 1998. He did join Akiyama in sternness after Noah was formed in 2000, but went back to burning by 2002. And like Rachel said, he did have um, an injury where he was out for two years. It was a neck injury. And then he came back for a few years. Then by 2010, he was released from Noah and he became a freelancer. So he does have a sort of footprint in Noah's history and in the, in the fabric of Noah, but that might be why you're not maybe familiar with him. 
yeah, I wasn't familiar with him at all, like at all, um, before researching this episode and I learned more about him more, you know, towards the end of the career in this, uh, time period, but I was really delighted. Like he's just very delightful and very fun. Um, at that time in 2006, he was known for having a punch perm hairstyle, which is this tightly permed hairstyle that was really popular in the 70s to 90s among Yakuza rookies. His character sort of embodies this feeling of a low-level criminal. Think, you know, like in anime and manga, you have like this group of, you know, criminals, delinquents who are beating up the bad guy and you have like one or two like sort of goofy guys, they're going to have that tight punch perm hairstyle. So he was sort of known as the Aniki of Noah. This is important, I swear. (laughs) And it is important for two specific reasons. One is that his stipulation for his white belt match against Kishin Kawabata was that should he win, Kawabata would have to start wearing a punch perm hairstyle like him. Kawabata lost. He started wearing one. Uh, This becomes important for a storyline just a little bit later on. The other reason is that this Aniki character led to fans wanting to see him face the Aniki of Zero One Max, Kamikaze, with the Zero One ring announcer, Yoshitada Okita, suggesting a title match between the two Anakis. Shiga didn't want it. He demanded that in order to get it, if you really, really want it, Okita would get a punch perm hairstyle. The announcer, the ring announcer of Zero One would have to get a punch perm hairstyle. And he did. To Okita's credit, he did. And Shiga agreed to this match against Kamikaze. And that is what becomes your lumberjack death match in December of 2006 in Currican Hall at Zero One's max year end event. This match ended in a victory for Shiga. And like we mentioned before, this was another match that we could not find, but we believe that it is out there. So if someone has access to it, please let us know. We'd love to see it. Yeah. I'm very, very, very excited. If any, uh, Buddy is a zero one fan, is an archiver. Anyone knows anyone out there? I would love to watch this match. This was the last match that happened in Shiga's reign before it became a tag title belt. And the reason it became a tag title belt takes us right back to what I had mentioned with the Kawabata match. So after Kishin Kawabata unsuccessfully challenged For the white GHC, he was made to wear that punch perm hairstyle as a punishment. However, these two sort of ended up hitting it off. It opened up some doors to them working as a tag team, and they really, really liked working together to the point where Shiga decided that being a singles champion just wasn't good enough anymore. He wanted to hold the belt with Kawabata. So he insisted as his next white belt defense stipulation to hold a tag team tournament to to determine the next champion for the belt. This means that by all technicalities, he kind of vacated the belt in order to turn the belt into this prize for the tournament. This was a temporary vacating, however, as Kawabata and Shiga were able to win the one-day tournament at Differ Ariaki on February 17th, 2007. 
thus becoming the joint sixth champions of the belt. Due to costs, Noah did not make a second belt to use as a tag team title. Instead, they shared one belt between them, citing that one belt is enough if you have a bond. So like I said before, Noah is really just a long episode of Arrested Development sometimes, and there is no better example of that than this. Than two men holding one belt together because they couldn't afford a second belt. And I just, I have to hand it to them though. One belt is enough if you have a bond. It's a really, really good excuse. I really enjoyed it, but. I appreciate that they came up with that to cover for the fact they couldn't have two tag belts. I, I, I really do, but it just, it's something else. And to credit, the tag run didn't last the entire year. For in November of 2007, Shiga and Kawabata dissolved their tag team in order to focus on their singles careers. This means that the belt had to go one direction or the other and had to go back to being a singles belt. Later, the two do reunite and start teaming again, but not before they had to have a match together to decide which one of them was going to have sole custody of their bonded white belt. Kawabata won and held the belt for 11 months where he made four successful defenses. This makes his reign the longest and most successful with the white GHC. So that brings us to October 6, 2008, where Makoto Hashi wins the belt from Kawabata, ending his big, long, historic reign. Hashi had actually challenged for this belt three other times previously, meaning that he had challenged for the white belt more than any other competitor before he was finally successful and getting the white GHC. It lasted all the way to June 8th, 2009, where he lost the belt to Kobashi in this match where Jun Akiyama was the referee. Now, Jun Akiyama is Hashi's mentor and trainer. So this is a really interesting match. I would love to see it. I don't know if it made tape, but I saw some really fun fan pictures of Akiyama all up in his referee outfit. It was, it looked like a really fun match. I think poor Hashi got brought to his own bullying for that match, unfortunately. And Akiyama in his little ref's outfit, he looked like a little bit of a geek, but it's lovely. And I would love to see the match, but poor Hashi. Poor, poor Hashi. He deserves so much better. But yeah, he, Akiyama did look a bit, a bit like a geek. It was, it was charming. I liked it. It was charming. And that brings us to our final reign, which is none other than Kenta Kobashi. This was Kenta Kobashi's first belt after his return to Noah on March 1st, 2009, after undergoing emergency surgery for his arms in September of 2008. Prior to returning to the ring, Kobashi stated that he wanted to start in opening matches rather than being a main event player. So at this point, the white belt had kind of drifted down the card substantially, usually placed within the first two matches of the card. In this way, it seemed as though the white belt was kind of made for Kobashi, like to get back into his role, get back into the swings of things while still putting him with just enough spotlight to keep the fans happy. However, Kobashi's name and star power alone immediately elevates this belt. As soon as he won it, it's right back up 
on the upper half of the card as either the semi-main or just before the semi-main. It's just the most Kobashi situation ever. It's just really funny. He tried. He, he really tried. did. He yeah. really did. And that sits so well into Kobashi's sort of special stipulation that he put into this belt, which we'll talk about in just a second. Because the belt's identity really does change with Kobashi, with this elevation. During the final stage of the belt with Kobashi as champion, the belt was actually changed to purple. It was taking on Kobashi's color and the system of sort of choosing unique stipulations was phased out. And we really only had one stipulation. Instead, matches against Kobashi for this formerly white belt had a 20 minute time limit. And should it go to a draw, the fan who won that Noah lottery would choose the winner which is just such a rule. And like you said, it's just so incredibly Kobashi. I can't imagine the pressure of having to choose a winner in that kind of situation. Oh, absolutely. Just imagine that there is a draw and they go up to you with your little microphone and they ask you to pick somebody that isn't Kenta Kobashi or to let Kobashi keep his belt. What do you do? What do you do in that situation? Well, the match we watched was Kobashi versus Masao Inoue. We did. And he fought really hard, but <laughs> he couldn't He couldn't quite last. But if that match went to 20 minutes, if Masao Inoue, I'm going to be honest with you, if Masao Inoue went 20 minutes with Kenta uh-huh. Kobashi, I might want to give him that belt. Just, just as ah. a, just as a, you know what? I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I think... Oh my I God. think he'd earn it at that point. Wow. Is this it? Is this it? <laughs> I have no idea how to process that information. <laughs> that I would put a belt on Masao in a way before Kenta Kobashi. Yeah. Wow. Well, everybody, I think we're breaking up kickout due to creative differences. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to have to. That's that's crazy. Wow. Okay. You would you would just you would just keep to the status quo then, huh? Oh, I'd throw that belt right back on Kobashi. Are you kidding? Yeah. In you that situation. Get- He'd shake your hand after and look real proud of you. Like you made a really hard decision. Mm. He would. <laughs> As I've told you before, that situation would never happen to me. I don't want to be a part of the fan lottery. I'd be too nervous. Yeah. You'd immediately hand over your lottery ticket to whoever was sitting next to you. Oh yeah. Just without even looking, just here, take it. But yeah, there, there was some significant changes in the belt as far as the personality of the belt goes up until this point, it really been floating around that lower mid card. And now it's a lot higher. And in some ways, I don't think this is all that much of a huge departure and more what Akiyama had wanted in the first place, the belt taking on the characteristics of the champion, both literally and metaphorically with it becoming more of a serious title once again with better card placement because of the champion himself. So that sort of works out in its own way, if a little different than perhaps what it had been up until that point. Sadly, Kobashi was injured in December of 2009 and returned the belt in June of 2010. The belt immediately went inactive with that injury and was abandoned altogether soon after. 
There was a lot of speculation through early 2010 as to what the company was going to do with the belt, if anything at all. There was a sense that the belt didn't have a lot of worth, but it was missed among fans as something for the younger and mid-card talent to do. I went digging through a lot of old Twitter messages to sort of see what people were saying about the belt. And during this 2010 period, a lot of people were thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe this mid-card wrestler could challenge for it, or maybe this guy or this young guy. There was a lot of talk about it sort of becoming the Kensuke office belt. A lot of people wanted to see it on Nakajima and especially Miyahara, which we talked about as like, okay, yeah, actually Kento would be a really good champion uh, with his great comedic timing. It would really show off his chops. But yeah, there was that sense that it was kind of missed. It wasn't a belt of great prestige, but people missed having that excitement and having something for those lower mid-card talents to do something. In June of 2010, right when Kobashi was returning the title to Noah, just right around that time period, Atsushi Aoki challenged Prince Devitt for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. At the press conference for this match, Aoki made the remark that his goal was to make the IWGP junior belt, and I quote, worth less than the GHC white belt, which is just such a hard line to say, just so, so, so mean. But it really solidified how that belt was seen by the community at large and even the other wrestlers at that point in time that this white belt sort of existed, but it didn't. And it was worth so little that Aoki wanted to take a belt from the other company and said, you know what, I'm going to make your belt worth less than that. And sort of going off the feeling of that belt just sort of existing, but not existing and not really worth too much. In the lead up to Great Voyage in 2011, Noah announced that all of the belts would be challenged for on the card, but they notably left off the white belt, which was noted by several fans. They're just like, hello, all the belts, but where's where's the white GHC? And to me, this really signifies that the company simply had no intentions on using this belt again. When Akiyama left Noah in 2012 and the exodus that saw him, Shiyazaki, Kanemaru, Kotaro Suzuki, and Aoki going back to all Japan, the belt and the names of past champions were removed from Noah's official website. And the term we found used to describe this was that the information was effectively sealed. And this just felt incredibly sad. You know, that was a really tumultuous time for the company and tensions were really high. Suddenly the white belt was just gone from the website, almost as if they needed to just like put all of Akiyama's things in a box and leave it for him at the door to take with him on the way out. And this information was just gone as if it really didn't exist anymore in Noah's history and was just gone from the fabric of the company because of these disputes with Kobashi and his contract not being renewed around his retirement and things like that. So it just felt really sad to us. And um, again, you know, we, we spoke earlier about how this belt gets rarely brought up when, you know, we're talking about Noah and yeah, it just is, it's kind of a weird note to sort of end on there, but that's, that's how Noah handled it when Akiyama left in 2012. And then as of August, 2018, Noah has officially stated that they have no plans to bring the belt back. 
And you raise a good point with people not really bringing up the belt, that belt not really coming up a lot in conversation. There isn't a whole lot of legacy with that belt. There isn't a whole lot of uh, great things associated with it. Even now, uh, when I was digging through Twitter, actually, I found out that when Shinsuke Nakamura had won the IWGP Intercontinental title in July of 2012, he had made the straps to the belt white. And a handful of fans were sort of speculating on that. They were like, oh, this is kind of like the white GHC. So I wonder if it's really kind of going to last. Even people would say, like, would it fall to the same fate as the other white belt? And that's sort of indicative of what people thought of the white belt at that point of time. You see white and then you're like, okay, this is sort of a doomed belt, which It wasn't at the time Nakamura ended up elevating it and bringing it a lot of prestige. It's a little sad to think about nowadays, but uh, it really is an interesting sort of uh, thing to think about where the fans have sort of associated that white belt, that white kind of strap with something that is inherently not going to last. One thing, another little tidbit I found that was sort of interesting while digging through history was that when Akiyama won AJPW's Gaura TV Championship in 2017, he insisted on adding his own little stipulations to the belt for each unique title defense that he had. One example would be against Minoru Tanaka, in which the opponents could only win on a roll-up. And this is very, very similar to the white GHC. And I thought that was really funny that that's just sort of Akiyama's thing. He just, he likes it. He likes to take the belt and make it more exciting and add his own stipulations. And again, in this essay, I will explain (laughs) why Jun Akiyama needs to have that extreme belt and he needs to come up with his own stipulations. And of course, in the end... Now Michi Marafuji is going to win the belt on a count out in less than 15 minutes. And that's how Marafuji gets the DDT Extreme belt. Thank you for joining my presentation. Time is a flat circle in wrestling. Time is a flat circle. And speaking of, we do have nowadays our own little open weight championship. Do you think that the GHC national belt holds any similarities to the white belt? And do you think that it is possible that one day the national belt might meet the same fate? Well, in terms of meeting the same fate, I do think that any newer belt that isn't part of your company's true staples will always be at risk for being phased out or... Like we've seen recently with New Japan, it could be unified with another. I'm not too worried about that at the moment because the national has a solid identity, but it's the one similarity between the white belt and the national that I am concerned about. And that's that the national is meant to be an open weight belt, but we've only seen one open weight match so far, which was Keno versus Daisuke Harada from January 5th, 2022 on their secret card show. This really irritated me at the time because this sort of match could have headlined a show for them had it been given some proper promotion. Daisuke is the junior ace. He's done everything you can do as a junior in Noah. So he's really the perfect person to start challenging at the national level. And that would help some of the bottlenecking that we see in the Noah junior division, which is stacked. 
And like I've mentioned before, Noah is good at telling believable, incredible stories between juniors and heavyweights. And we see it a bit with the white belt and in that era of Noah in general, a match that if I've, that if I'm given the opportunity, I'll just talk about it for four hours is Yoshihiro Takayama versus Kenta Mm -hmm. from 2004. And it's a perfect example of how effective that storytelling can be. And you mentioned it before, but we've recently saw at the end of 2021, Seiki Yoshioka had these random singles matches with Nakajima and Kano, where he looked great. And he's another person who could really benefit from challenging for the national. So Noah actually gives us one-offs between heavies and juniors a lot. So a massive missed opportunity, in my opinion, would be if they didn't start to honor the open weight aspect of the national belt. Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree with you. I can't really find any fault in that logic. And if anything, yeah, that's the one thing that they could benefit from copying the white belt in some way, shape or form. Obviously the national has a little bit more prestige behind it. It's been elevated through champions such as Sugira, Nakajima, Keno, which is literally just the first three champions right there from the bat, all top carters. I think that's great. I think that puts the belt in a nice higher position, sort of keeps the belt from floating down and ending up being phased out. Hopefully it will protect it from that. But you, you're absolutely correct. We're missing a ton of opportunities in putting that belt in the hands of someone who could do something truly, truly unique with it which isn't to say that some of these reigns haven't been unique. You know how I feel about Keno's big, big reign where he just takes down all of these old men on this big campaign to destroy the uh, retirement community of Noah. I love that. That's great. And that's very unique in a way that sort of, I don't want to say echoes the white belt, but it has a theme in the way that the white belt reigns sort of did. And I like that, but we could be doing so much more. Like you said, that sort of almost waste of a match with Daisuke Harada. There's so much more you could do with that. You put that belt on Daisuke, who has stated that he doesn't really want to move up to heavyweight. He wants to stand there. They talked about that on the wrestling podcast in that wonderful interview with Gareth and Liam. He wants to stay in the juniors, but he's done everything he can. So what do you do at that point? You give him the red belt and he starts taking on these heavies. He starts taking on other juniors who want to elevate themselves into sort of this position. There's so much more you could be doing with that. Exactly that. I mean, just the matchups that you can even get by him, you know, there are other juniors challenging Daisuke is massive. So again, a a huge missed opportunity if that's not what we see um, coming to fruition anytime soon with that national belt. But I don't think that we're at risk for them taking it off the website anytime soon. So there is at least that. Yeah, actually, that's true because Lede has already uh, left the company. They're the ones who created the belt. Though I will say to your point, as much as I want to see other people like Daisuke or Seiki Yoshioka challenge for and hold successfully the national title, I could do a part three of Keno's No Country for Old Shooters campaign because that was a very, some very enjoyable times in Noah when he was holding that belt. I agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) 
Thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. We are always excited to bring you these deep dives on all corners of Perasu, as well as awesome interviews and more. Please subscribe to or follow us on Apple or Spotify so that you can get our episodes first when they drop. Subscribing to us and giving us a review or rating on your preferred platform really helps us as we try to grow Kickout. So please help us out by doing that. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Kickout299. And then you can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y star. And then you can find Alicia at Shiranuikai with two eyes. You can also go to our blog, kickout299.wordpress.com. We have several great articles up, some book reviews, and some other projects that are forthcoming. Um, So please check out everything that we have there. And for people to submit questions and feedback that we can read on the next episodes, or if you have an interest in submitting a pitch for the blog or the podcast, please feel free to email us at kickoutat299 at gmail.com. Next up is another faction overview episode, this time featuring AJPW with Jesse and the returning Jonathan Foy. And as always, make sure you follow our Twitter to see what else we have planned for upcoming episodes and projects. Thank you all so much once again, and we will talk to you soon.